country trees you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge traditional skills and modern techniques whatever language you speak you have a world to offer every day climb with the ISA Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, the host of this series. Today's lecture is by Andreas Detter, and it's titled, Wind Load Assessment for Ornamental Trees, Past Methods and Current Developments. Andreas has an engineering degree in landscape design and 15 years of experience. He is a German-appointed expert witness and co-founder of Brudian Partner Tree Consult in Munich, Germany. Andreas's introduction is by Dr. Brian Kane from the University of Massachusetts. This lecture was originally presented at the ISA International Meeting in Providence, Rhode Island in July 2009. Thank you very much. I have to correct you a little bit, Brian. I didn't do the thousand myself. They were done in our office. I don't know. I haven't counted how much I did myself. But uh, otherwise, people will ask, when did you start doing it? When you were eight or what? <laughs> right. So, uh, but uh, it's true. We, in our office, we are applying these static uh, integrated methods, polling tests. We will look a little bit into that. Um, and to start with, uh, I really enjoyed Ken's presentation. Uh, our approach to the issue of wind loading of trees is, is different. Um, it was mentioned several times in, in Ken's presentation that there is a difference between studying wind loading in trees over a long time and actually trying to make an assessment as, a, as an engineer that, that has to assess a structure. Usually we don't have enough time to monitor wind loads and wait for big stormy winds to occur. So we have to come up with an answer for the client. Is that tree stable or is it not stable within a reasonable amount of time? And uh, still trying to get as close to the real situation as possible. So the information that Ken and his co-workers are gathering is very valuable for us to try and improve the models that we're using for uh, analyzing wind loads on trees in the urban area. Um, the view on trees for us in our practice as consultants is, has got to be a little bit wider beyond wind load. And just to give you an idea uh, of uh, things to be considered when you're looking at the stability of a structure, uh, just that example, that's from last year in St. Louis, the big arch, uh, and uh, when you're looking at this structure, and most of you will know that it's, uh, uh, you can enter it, you can go up in it. I, I didn't manage to. I'm getting more and more claustrophobic in my, my older days already, uh, so I couldn't really get up there. But uh, that was not the problem. Uh, the stability of the structure, I was pretty confident in. Like Ken said, there are engineers involved in it, and they have to test and calculate the structures before they are open for the public. But there are several things that these engineers will consider when they look at the structure. For example, they will consider the material that they're using and its, uh, its properties, its strength, its elasticity. They would consider the, the loads, in the, the forces involved, like the dead weight of the structure itself, the service load, how many people can we have up there, Will there be snow on it? This is a, maybe not such a big problem in Australia or, or in the south of the States, but in our area, I live in the south of Bavaria, we get a lot of snow, so this is really something that has to be taken into consideration. Then you've got the structure itself. 
the load-bearing geometry, the form of the structure, you have got its susceptibility for oscillation. Is it able to sway and oscillate in the wind? And, of course, is, it, is the structure okay or are there any damages to it? Are there any, any defects in the structure that have to be taken into account when you think about is it safe to go up there or is it not safe? And now the other big part of the assessment, if you would like to do it, if you try to do it properly, and uh, I, I think in, uh, intuitively everybody who considers going up a structure like this is sort of taking that a little bit into account. What does the wind do to it? At least this uh, structure, I think, is... Uh, how high was it? I don't remember exactly, like 100 meters or so, 200 meters. It was quite high. So you have got the height of the structure itself that is a good indicator for the wind load that it will experience, but also, of course, the shape, the exposed shape, and the, the side it is standing in, the location. So all these factors are taken into account when, if a static engineer try to assess the structure, and the next thing he will think about, what are acceptable safety margins for this structure to make up for defects, make up for faults or errors, errors in, your, in the calculation. You have to have these safety margins, like in the example that Ken has brought up with the, the railroad bridge. They incorporated a design factor of three, they made it three times as strong as, they, uh, as the load it was expected to experience. Now, how does that apply to trees? Uh, I think when we do tree risk assessment, we are dealing with a structure. This is a special structure. That is a golden caravan up in a tree uh, that uh, an artist has put up there, and then he got into trouble with the authorities because they were saying, well, this is not a safe thing. Remove it. Uh, then the task force was called in. This is the people from our office at that time. And we were given the task to assess, is this a safe structure or not? So we were considered with the load-bearing structure, of course, with the tree. And the tree had strong decay in, one of, in the major union. It's a horse chestnut. It decays quite rapid, rapidly. The question was, of course, how great is the load? that this structure is exposed to. And there we have the combination of wind load on the caravan, wind load on the canopy, and the dead weight of that uh, caravan up there in the tree. Pretty unusual. Normally, it's a little bit easier. Well, but actually, we had quite good figures for a caravan. But uh, the trees, to assess loads in trees, is more difficult than on caravans, I would say. And then the question was, do can we actually prove that there are sufficient safety margins? They were planning on having uh, a weekly TV show on the inside of the caravan that you see here. So there are people up there, and uh, you cannot just leave this structure without assessing the, the safety margins involved. So when we talk about normal trees as well as caravan trees, you will give a thought on how strong is the load-bearing structure. We can, I've just put on a number of things that you would probably go through mentally, not necessarily uh, getting all the wood properties correct, but you will think of those things, and you, you can go into some depth with that study. Uh, problem is, if you're focusing only on the strength of the structure, you only get one side of the picture, and the other side, of course, would be the wind load. Uh, these Inspections that we usually do visually are, facing, are, are focusing on this structural integrity, on the symptoms for defects. And I'm not trying to criticize that at all. This is also in our practice the main uh, form of inspection. We're doing visual inspection on most of our trees. When you do it, you intuitively will, pro will incorporate most of these factors that are uh, displayed here. You will also intuitively incorporate what we would call accepted levels of risk because even if you inspect trees very thoroughly, there's always uh, an inherent risk that they may fail in overloading situations. So there is, if we want to live with trees in our urban environments, there is a risk of failure that cannot really be, uh, that we cannot really get rid of. 
very usual way of looking at it into more detail is checking the degree of hollowness of stems, maybe looking at wood properties by extracting cores. And what I'm trying to show you here is if you, we're covering only a small part of the whole picture if we are looking at these things in detail. And a very important part, actually, is this blue area here, the, the wind load side of it. And that is determined by tree height, crown shape, and wind exposure, just to mention some of the issues that I would like to go into detail here now with that presentation. So the question is, how great is the load the tree is exposed to? And wind loads can be very different. That was obvious, I think, from Ken James' presentation just before, that there's a great variation in wind loading in trees, and there is not really an easy means of, of assessing it, especially, I would say, it's not possible to assess it from the trunk diameter. I think that's very misleading. You see the different trunk diameters here, here sorry, but uh, there's not such a big difference in the crown surface. Or you have trees growing in avenues, uh, in urban areas where there's sheltering effects. So we've got different wind loads for different trees. And at le uh, um, in the end, when trees are retrenching, when they're reducing their, their crown due to physiological effects when they age, then the stem diameter can definitely not be a measure for the wind load that they experience because the height and the crown surface is decreasing, but they don't stop growing. The stem will still grow bigger. So the question is, how can we analyze wind loads acting on a tree. Of course, we have the chance to study them over a long time, like Ken is doing, and that gives us very valuable information. Um, my clients would not be satisfied, usually, if I said that I have to monitor until the next windstorm comes, and then I can give you an answer. Uh, I'm not trying to make fun of, of Ken James' work. Please don't misunderstand me. Just as a practical application in an engineering context, you have to be able to assess the wind loads, estimate wind loads, uh, and you have to get as close as possible to the reality. You will not be able to entirely calculate wind loads. That's impossible. If you could measure them, that's difficult enough, but also you have to find means how to analyze it well enough. Um, this kind of wind load analysis, that picture dates back to 18, 1989 from the work of Günther Sinn and Lothar Wessely at the Stuttgart University. They started with these statics integrated methods, tree statics, trying to incorporate this part of the analysis, the wind load part, part and looking at the building codes, how wind loads on, 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 on constructions, on houses, on skyscrapers are assessed, and trying to uh, transfer this, these methodologies to trees. This is uh, from more, more recent work of Günther Sinn. You can see that uh, the principle is that you're looking at the crown shape, analyzing the surface exposed to the wind and the height of these little area units above ground to get a measure for the bending moment, like Ken has just pointed out very well, that you can only come up with a wind load measure if you are trying to assess the bending moment acting at the base of the trunk, uh, which is a measure of the force acting somewhere in the crown and the lever arm. And you can't really uh, calculate both of these, but if you couple them, you get the bending moment, then you are able to assess uh, or get a measure for the wind load that the tree is exposed to. In forestry, there is also what, uh, what is called mechanistic modeling and uh, what I'm trying to point out here is I'm not going to go into detail with these uh, models, and I, don't, I, I do not understand them well enough. But what they do, just as for trees in the urban area, uh, they're looking at what's called, let's see if that works here. Oh, come on, please. I don't get this mouse to work, I'm afraid. Maybe here. Yeah, there it is. You get what is called the expected wind speed at the location, at the stand, and you compare that with the critical wind speed for that stand of trees. And the expected wind speed 
is determined by many, many factors uh, that, are, uh, that are typical for the location that the trees are growing in. And the critical wind speed can be determined for forest trees from the species, tree heights, mean di diameters, but also uh, soil type and gap sizes in the canopy. All these things are taken into account in these models. It can get very complicated, very detailed. If you're interested in that, there are good publication, a good review by Barry Gardiner uh, that came out 2008, the way they deal with it. Now, for trees in the urban area, the principles are very similar, and I would like to show you some of the param parameters that are used to determine wind load on trees in the urban areas. We have the tree on one side, we've got the wind, so we are looking at these expected wind speeds. Uh, they would be determined by what we call storm recurrence, the, to the, topo the topography of, sorry, losing my English, the topography of the site, the terrain roughness, and the exposure of this specific site. This is what would determine the wind speeds that we have to expect in that area. And the tree also adds to uh, the actual wind loads that will occur or could be measured with the methodology that Ken James has, uh, has uh, just explained. The tree has a certain shape that it exposes to the wind. The crown structure will, uh, will, be, a part, will be a part of, uh, of the wind load or will affect the wind load. The reconfiguration of the crown, of the leaves, and the damping effects. Now I'm trying to uh, go into a little bit detail of all of these uh, aspects. And just to avoid misunderstanding, I'm not saying that we can actually measure all these things in detail, but if we try and incorporate these aspects into a wind load analysis, we will get closer to the real situation than we can if we just neglect them and treat all trees the same, expect them to have very similar wind loading. Where we use that information usually is the, the tree pull test. It's a static pull test where we apply a load to the tree. That's the method that was developed in Stuttgart by Gunterson and Lothar Wesseli. And basically what happens is we're applying a force to the tree. We're measuring the force that we apply. And then we monitor the tree's reaction in terms of fiber stretch on the backside and on the uh, side that is directed into the direction of the pull. We will measure compression of the fibers with the same strain meters or similar strain meters that Ken is using. And what we additionally measure is the, the tilt or the movement of the root plate down at the base because that is sort of a second aspect of the tree's reaction that the root plate is going to move as the tree is exposed to the load. The instruments that we are using now is a, are new instruments that have been updated uh, by Argus, the people who built also the, the Picus. They, they consist of a force meter to measure the load, a strain meter or elastometer that measures fiber deformation, and an inclinometer or tilt meter at the base of the trunk. And what we do with that information is we are able now from the tree reaction to that simulated static load, we are extrapolating to the load that will be, is expected in a storm event. And this extrapolation is done with a software called Arbostat now. An example for, for cases where we actually do that, and as I said, we don't do that to, with every tree that, that we are asked to give an evaluation of. That would not be possible. We do that very rarely. We do roughly 100 pulling tests per year. And uh, in our office, we are dealing with between 40 and 50,000 trees per year. So it's a very small fraction of trees that actually undergo this uh, procedure. And this is an example of a tree in a small town uh, close to the Alps. Uh, this is the, the tree. You see it's located in the main street of that village. It was there for a long time. They have records that it was there in 1648. So it's roughly 350 years old. And the problem was that uh, part of the crown 
broke out in a storm. But you see also from a distance already that this tree has significant problems in the stem area, a big cavity. We found areas of dysfunctional sapwood where the residual walls are very thin. We have also got root damages from probably from excavations when they uh, renewed the, the road. That tree used to grow in, an air, in, a, in a surrounding where there was no uh, uh, no, what's it called? No, no road with a uh, fully closed surface. So a lot of changes happened for that tree. Also some tree surgeons excavated the cavity in the past. So this, the stability of the tree was in question. And we were called in and literally when we were there, half this village or city came to see what we were doing because they really loved that tree. And uh, uh, the council was thinking or considering felling that tree, and it was a storm of protest, and everybody donated money for this tree to be inspected. And these are the cases where we need as much information about the tree as possible to be able to retain it without generating risks for the public. This is the main road of our city. So we couldn't really just say, okay, let's, it's probably fine, or I guess a 10% reduction will do it. We wanted to know Okay, how well can we, we wanted to get as much, much information as possible. How does that tree respond to the load, loads it is probably exposed to by the, uh, due to the wind? So what happens is we are looking at the uh, crown shape in a computer software. We're analyzing the proportions of the crown. We're not trying to detail, say, well, there's so and so much force acting at that and that part of the crown. We're trying to get the proportions right. And then there's an, an analysis that takes into account a lot of parameters, and I want to show them. The I want to show you the different parameters that are going into that estimation. And just to give you the example, the wind load analysis ended up with or rendered a result of 640 kilonewton meters. Now, like just like Ken said, we cannot really say how what the wind force was in terms of force actually, and and what point in the crown it acted, but uh, just to imagine that for people to understand, and also in, in the mechanical model, to be able to use it in a calculation, you have to come up with a force acting with a lever arm, and in this example, it's five tons, or roughly 11,000 pounds, acting at 12.5 meter height. So it's quite big forces, and this estimation, again, is within the range that Ken has shown, that he has measured in real trees, so we're pr quite happy that he's not coming up with much larger, -ish, larger uh, figures than the ones that we are estimating. And the result of that, est uh, that pulling test is that we have, we, we make an extrapolation for the reaction of a stable tree of that size, and that is the green area, that would be stable, and the red area down there is uh, a reaction that is not sufficient, where we have too much fiber deformation, critical thresholds could be reached in a storm, and that's why this is red. And for this tree here, we found a weak spot, that's the blue line, pretty close to the border of the green area. So we were able to retain that tree just as it is now. We will re-inspect the tree to see how it develops in the future, but at the moment, the result is the safety margins for this tree were sufficient. The gray area that you're seeing between the red and the green is where we cannot really, it, the safety margins are not great enough to say the tree is okay. We would have to be careful, err on the side of caution, and rather prune it a little bit uh, instead of taking the risk of it failing in a windstorm in that location. That is for the tipping. The tipping is not linear, so when trees start to tip over, uh, there is not a linear graph, not a linear extrapolation. This is a curve called the generalized tipping curve, and I don't want to go into detail with it here, but just to see, for you to see what is the result of these kind of pulling tests. The point is that I'm trying to make here, we're not trying to predict when the tree is going to fail. We're trying to pick out the trees that behave as a tree that we consider safe and, the tree, and pick out the ones that are actually do not have enough safety margins and they will end up down there in the red or gray area. We're not trying to predict critical wind speeds because I think there are so many factors involved that I would need a long time to study the dynamics of the tree in much more detail than I can do with uh, engineering, quick engineering, engineering methods. 
So one aspect is storm recurrence is something that I think is important to understand. We have wind zone maps in Germany. You have the same thing for the United States. And these wind zone maps, here is where the tree that we just looked at is located. These wind zone maps indicate wind speeds with a similar likelihood of recurrence. So that means if you're looking at one spot all over Germany, you're picking out one spot and that's where the tree is standing, you're choosing a wind speed that is likely to reoccur within 50 years, but not much earlier. So it's a statistical figure, and I'm trying to show you how that's derived. But of course, this measure is different. The wind speeds at the coast, our coast is up here, this dark blue area. Where does this? Here, here it works here. That's the coast that we have. There's a little bit coast over here, North Sea. So here is another wind zone because the wind speeds that are likely to reoccur within 50 years much greater than down in the inland area where these high wind, speech, high wind speeds are less likely. So for me, it was hard to get my head around that it should be uh, possible that it's only within 50 years that these storms reoccur. That's for the United States, a similar map that's already old. I'm sure there's newer ones. I'm trying to show you how these things are derived just quickly. You have the mean wind speeds measured over 10 minutes on the uh, on the x-axis down here. Oops, sorry, these are the wind speeds in meters per second. And here, you're, these dots, the, the higher they get, the less frequent they are. So you've got the high wind speeds occurring very, it's very unlikely that they occur here. They rarely occur. And what the, the, what the building codes do is they just draw a line at this uh, 89% uh, where this is the 50-year event where it's, very it's, where it's unlikely that the same storm, the same wind speed will be reached within 50 years once again. Um, and you have, to, of course, everybody will say, well, but storms, we have storms every year, right? Several storms every year. Uh, this is the likelihood that on the very same spot you get the same wind speed. And that's rather unlikely. In the Older models that we have been using for years that were developed by Günther Sinn and Lothar Wesseli, wind speed 12 is used as a design wind speed because of the fact that sound trees may fail. And if we are looking at a tree with defects, we don't expect it to be safer than or stronger than a healthy tree. So if a healthy tree may fail at wind speed 12, the uh, the, uh, uh, the rationale is that it's okay that this tree that we're looking at may also fail at wind speed 12, and then we call that an act of God. Um, Beaufort 12 would be 73 miles per hour, so these are wind speeds that do occur. And if we're looking at the tree now, this is, it was mentioned before by Scott Collin, uh, that actually these wind speeds are measured at 10 meter, 10 meter height as a reference. And what we have here is a wind profile uh, that tells you, okay, here is the wind speed, is the, the length of this arrow, is the wind speed in question, and you see that wind speed increases with the height. So the, tree, the parts of the crown that are up here in, at greater height will experience greater wind loading because the wind speeds are greater up there. In a forest situation, that wind profile is very different because there's very little wind speed within the stand and only the uppermost part of the crown will experience winds, greater, greater wind speeds. Now, just a quick glance at topography. Um, there is models for how uh, hills, for example, uh, affect the wind speeds that occur. This tree has a rather uh, uh, damaged crown already. It's located at the, uh, almost the top of a little hill. And uh, these elevations act like, act like obstacles in the wind flow and uh, increase the wind speed on the windward side and the hilltop. And there's studies for that. Here again we have this wind profile with the wind speed increasing with height. And you see on the hill here the wind speed is already very great just at a little height above ground 
and there's a different profile there. Uh, this is from a publication that's very interesting on forest, uh, uh, forests on hilltops and hillsides, and you see that there is this increase in density of the lines. It's like the wind has to pass over this hill and is pressing over it, and in that narrowing area, the wind speed has to increase. And right after the hill, there is an area where there's very little wind speed. This is from a practical uh, uh, case that we had where there was a failure of one big oak tree, and it was, it was situated right here on the side of the hill. There was a big, big river valley, and the storm came from the side that we are looking now. It was going up the hill, and as, as it was going up the hill, wind speed was increased, and that enhanced the wind pressure on the tree. The other thing that we can take into account is the terrain, the environment around the tree. And there's a lot of differences between for trees that are located in, an, uh, in a shore area where there's a lake or the sea, if we are in the open landscape or in a suburb village environment or in a uh, center of a city environment. Now, these are environment categories from the German building code for wind actions. Uh, I'm sure there's the same categories in, uh, here in the States. I know in Europe uh, they have come up with a European code for wind actions on structures, and they all use these categories as well. Now, what do these categories tell us? They indicate mean wind speeds at 10-meter height, because if you have a reference of 10-meter height, the wind speed in the same storm event will be very different in the open landscape compared to in the city environment. The next thing that you get is typical wind profiles. That was work done by Davenport back in the 60s, and that is still being used. And in this uh, diagram down here, you see the red line is the mean wind speeds, and the mean wind speed in an urban area, in a city area, increases uh, rather slowly with the height, whereas here at the open sea, it increases very quick, quickly above ground. The black line that you see there is the gustiness, the turbulences. And that's just going uh, opposite. The mean wind speed in a city environment is rather low, but the gustiness is greater. And you see the big turbulences the, that the black line does uh, indi indicate around the mean wind speed. And I always compare that to uh, a river. A uh, river is water flowing also over a terrain, basically, the, the riverbed. And if you're trying to go up the river with your canoe, you're not going to do that in the center of the stream. You're going to the riverside because there the flow is decelerated by the rough surface of the, the shore of the, of, the, of the riverbed. And the rougher it is, the more it slows down the, uh, the speed of the, of the water. If you are in a concrete channel, then there's not a big difference from the middle of the stream to the side of the stream. But in a natural riverbed, the speed of the water will slow down very much at the sides. So we've got mean wind speed decreasing as we get from an open area to the city area, but the gustiness, the turbulences will increase. This is an example from, from Japan. They started uh, studying the near-ground wind speeds in the vicinity of buildings because they had big problems, experienced big problems that pedestrians couldn't really walk close to buildings, close to high-rise buildings in a storm because the wind speeds were increasing so much. And these are from, this is from wind tunnel studies, and you can see the wind is coming from the top, blowing to the, uh, to the building. And at the sides of the building here, we have the greatest increase in wind speed, and the wind pressure is correlated to the square of the wind speed, that's why the pressure, wind pressure on, ob on, on objects, on structures next to that high-rise building are increasing very strongly. We've got a number of urban wind effects that we can take into account when we look at the site that the tree is growing in. Now, all these are models, and uh, if we have this, uh, uh, these uh, blast pipe effects, for example, or if we have we call a tunnel effect in a, in a line of buildings with uh, flat surfaces, the wind speed will increase. We cannot really quantify that exactly. 
But if we neglected it, we would make quite a big mistake because the tree at the end of this tunnel will experience much more wind speeds, much greater wind speeds than uh, the same tree if it was located in another area. So uh, the problem that I think is in, in the head of most people that they think when you start applying engineering methods or technical devices, as soon as you get that into uh, your assessment, you're gaining objectivity that you get objective information, that's true information, versus visual inspection being very subjective. And I was trying to, uh, to argue against that because all our instruments require that subjective judgment. And all these uh, considerations with the wind load have a high degree of subjectivity. But that's why they call me as an expert, because they think that my subjective judgment is better than someone else's who doesn't have a clue about it, maybe. So I don't think sub being subjective is something bad. We have to be defendable. That's important. If I'm saying this tree is experiencing greater wind loads, I have to be able to defend that. And I think we've got enough information from the wind side, from what the wind engineers have been working on, to be able to defend making subjective judgments on these effects when we consider wind loading. Now, this is a tree that will experience this tunnel effect because wind speeds will increase in this narrow city, in this narrow city street. This is an effect that we've just seen. You have a big building as an obstacle in the flow. The tree here will experience very little wind load or opposite wind load if the, tree, if the building is big enough and the wind direction will be against the, the, uh, the normal wind direction, and the tree at the side of the building will experience enhanced wind loading due to these effects that the uh, wind has to go around the building, and that enhances wind speed. So there is a lot of variation in wind loading in an urban area, and it is definitely true that there is not a, a, a way to assess that objectively, but measuring the wind loads on the tree. Now, that requires a lot of time, and if we want to be able to make a good judgment, a good analysis of the wind load, we will have to incorporate these factors by making a subjective judgment for it. This is an example of a tree where we have also experienced root damage. The, the roots have been severed, but uh, we were called in whether the tree could be retained or not. So look, just looking at the side, we have this big building in the background. This is the prevailing wind direction, and the tree is actually uh, benefiting from the sheltering effects that it is behind a big structure. We've got, definitely got the vortices that develop. We've got the wind that goes around the building, but it experienced much less wind loading than without this building in the vicinity of it. Now, this has been studied in wind tunnels, and I'm always quoting things here from other people's work. Don't misunderstand me. I'm more collecting information and trying to put it into practice in wind load assessment. I'm not doing wind load studies. I can't afford to do that. I have to write reports most of the time. But there is a lot of information available. This is work by uh, Mr. Oops. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking about it, and the, the reference is missing. It's Mr. Rook's work. He's working in Karlsruhe in Germany, and he's doing a lot of uh, excellent work, excellent studies in wind tunnels with the effect of buildings or other trees or streets on the wind loading of trees in the urban area. So that's Mr. Rook. Sorry, this was omitted somehow. When we're estimating wind actions on tree, we can apply the general information available in building codes. Now, this is the German building code, and it all works similar. If you have a structure that is able to oscillate in the wind, is able to react to wind, and it's not a static, very stiff uh, structure, you will have to take into account the increasing wind velocity with height. So what you do is you're looking at the area exposed to the wind at a certain height, and you compare it to the wind speed that is to be expected at that height. And then you just look at it all over the crown. You're summing it up, and you're coming up with an end product for the wind load. Now, don't forget about that formula. I just wanted to, you to see that we are summing up 
This is the sum here, the red one. We're summing up over the height of the crown, the area, the wind speed squared, and the height at which that area is. We have got the density of the air, and then we've got two important factors, which is called the aerodynamic drag factor and the gust reaction factor. Now, this is simply from the building codes. It's nothing specific for trees. But in the building codes, they have incorporated that idea that you have wind forces acting on the structure, and the structure is reacting to it. This is the gust reaction factor that we're looking at, and also the aerodynamic drag factor, which is a little bit special for trees because they are really flexible in the wind. This, again, is from uh, uh, Mr. Rook's work. Uh, that's a little bit short of time. We don't have to go into detail with that, but these are things that have been studied. Crown reconfiguration, Ms. Stephen Vogel's work, on how leaves reconfigure, how leaves change their shape in the wind. And my, my, well, my perception of how that works actually is that uh, this, the English term drag for wind forces is, is very good, I think. We don't have an equivalent in German because it is something that pulls on the leaves. The, the wind goes around the crown, and as it goes around the crown, pulls on every single leaf and it changes shape, it cha the branches change, change the orientation. So this is, in a way, what, for me, what happens in trees. And then we've got all these reactions that Ken James has talked about. I don't need to mention that anymore. And you can see that in, in many different species, how these leaves are orientated along the wind. So we've got the wind hitting the tree and the, wind is changing, uh, the tree is changing its shape and it's changing its porosity, and all these things have to be taken into account if you try to assess wind loads on trees. Now, we've got measures for that. We've got wind tunnel tests. We've got tests on real trees, full-size trees for the wind loading, and what we come up with is an aerodynamic drag factor, and what's important to understand is that this aerodynamic drag factor changes with the wind speed. Right? At very low wind speed, the, the leaves are not reconfiguring. The crown is more or less keeping its shape. But as the wind speed increases, more and more branches deflect. The, bra the porosity of the crown increases, and we are, have got less energy uptake from the wind. Here are some guideline values that have been developed in Stuttgart by Mr. Wessel and Mr. Sinn for just comparing three different species. And uh, here the horse chestnut with the very stiff branches and the big, big leaves. And you compare that with an oak or a birch that has the thin, flexible branches, small leaf, very transparent crown. So it will take up much less energy from the wind. This is uh, 0.12, which would mean one-eighth of the wind energy. If you compare it to, to a wall of the same form or a, a yeah, a full bluff body of the same form that is taking up all the wind energy, then only one-eighth of the wind energy is actually going into the tree. Compare that to, tree, to cars, where we've got these aerodynamic drag factors all the time. The horse chestnut is the old Porsche, and the oak is the car shapes that we have now, more or less, and that birch is the future. That looks from, like one, from one of those signs uh, that, that's... Uh, ah, what's it called? losing track. Science fiction movies, exactly. That's what they look like. And then if we don't get to new energy, forms of energy, and relay on oil in the future, we will end up with these shapes, probably. Now, being flexible for trees is a big advantage. And I think Mordillo has got it very right. Being flexible can be an advantage, because you can react on forces acting on you, and reduce the forces acting on you, and reduce the risk of failing. And then we are in the area of tree dynamics, which has been covered by Ken very well just now. There's lots of different studies going on, uh, lots, lots of different methods to study the dynamic effects of wind in trees. And just uh, what I want to show you, this is more or less covered already by Ken. We've got uh, a wind structure of, of wind that's acting on the crown, and we've got a typical response of the tree to that crown, to that, to that wind load. Now, the wind speed is not constant. You've just seen that. We've got a mean wind speed, 
and then we've got wind speed increasing suddenly in gusts and decreasing again, and it's like the, the, the wind speed is varying around this mean wind speed. What the engineers in wind engineering do is they, they divide up the wind load in a more or less static part that is acting all the time on the structure. And then you've got that variation that's indicated here in the second picture. You've got the variation of wind speed being greater and smaller is what we've just seen. And the structure responds to the entire wind loading. And the tree does the same in a very complex way. But if we're trying to model that and come up with a wind load figure, a figure for, for how great is the wind load on the tree, we can simply assume that there's a static part that's pushing the, the tree to one side and keeps it from going back because there's always wind blowing to it. And then you've got all these gusts and it starts to dance there, does that looping motion, and I'm, I'm starting to dance again. Ken gets everybody to dance on stage, it's really great. So you've got the tree bending under that more or less static mean wind, wind pressure, and then you've got that movement going on, exactly what we've seen in the uh, films that uh, Ken has shown. And if I'm trying to model that, I can say there's a mean wind force acting on the tree and a gust reaction that gives me how much will that mean wind force be amplified how much more deflection do I get because of this dynamic behavior of the structure? And this is from, from work that also can, is part of, of Brian Keynes and, and uh, Ken James' work. Down here at the lower diagram, you see what Ken has described as well. You've got the wind speed data in the background with the dotted lines. Please work now. It's very, ah, here it is. Here's the wind speed. And you see the wind speed increases. There is a gust coming. It's a strong gust, rather long gust, but the tree does not react to it. And here we've got a big, big gust, but also the tree reaction is delayed. Only here there's a reaction of the tree. But there's this one little gust here, this one, this peak in the background, and it generates a rather big reaction in the tree. And this is due to these effects that if you have a, a gust that is coming at the right time in the swaying process of the tree, in this oscillating process of the tree, it will, it's able to amplify the, the uh, resulting bending moment on the tree. It's able to amplify the effect of the wind speed on the tree. And uh, the wind engineers call that the equivalent static wind load, which is an, a multiple of the actual mean wind force acting there, because it is taking into account these amplifying effects, and then you have to consider the structure, the dynamic behavior of the structure. We will never be able to get this transfer function that Ken was talking about, that transfers wind speed into wind reaction, because that would, in, would imply that we have to study this very tree very long and very exact, but we can get good estimates of the tree reaction. Now, this is an example from drop tests that we've done in, on dismantling operations. And just quickly, you see the top curve here, if it's visible, yeah, is the impact force as we are dropping a log into the rope system. And the bottom one is the strain in the fibers measured with the same instruments that Ken has been using. And you see here, we've got... Uh, uh, a tree with two leaders. We're dismantling one of the leaders. The other one is intact. And you see there's a, a distinct stem bending resulting from it. Now we have dismantled one of the leaders and we're taking down the other one. And you see how the data changes. The stem bending, the oscillation changes significantly because that second leader is gone already. We've got a different structure. And we've got a different reaction in the stem, a much more violent reaction in the stem. And if we're looking at this scenario here, the, tr the crown is entirely gone. We've got that short, sturdy stub only left, and we are uh, loading that with an impact load. That was very interesting for me because the impact force actually is very great, of course. But the stem reaction was interesting because we measured strain in the fibers, all right? That was down at the bottom fiber strain, and 
as this impact load occurred, we did not really get a big reaction here. It's rather small. But then after the impact, we get this great reaction in, in the fibers. So actually, the stress on the tree was far from critical. It's that big, big trunk's not going to fail. But actually, the effect on the, tr on the tree was much greater after the impact because of this harmonic oscillation, this reaction of the trunk that could, without any damping effects, move as it wanted to. There's a big effect of foliage on that, aerodynamic damping. I'm always explaining that with the branch, with leaves on, trying to hit someone, doesn't really hurt. If you take all the leaves off, you can hit a little bit more quickly, it hurts. And if you take all the branches off, then it's really, oh, okay, I'm a father of four daughters. I'm not doing that, but uh, they know I'm able to. So natural frequency has been studied by many people, and this data is something that we can incorporate in our software model to be able to get a better picture of how does that specific tree react to gusts, how is the gust reaction, uh, how can we uh, analyze the gust reaction. And here we also have the effect of the green line, which is the whole tree with all the branches and all the leaves on. This is a conifer, so it's needles. And if we take all, only the stem, the natural frequency changes significantly. This is one practical example that I wanted to show you, and I'm rushing it a little bit, but this is, I think, a very interesting thing because it, it visualizes what, what equivalent static load, wind load, means. We did a pulling test on this tree here. It's a rather slender tree, no leaves on. It's a linden tree. And we applied the load. We have the strain meters at the stem so we can measure the reaction. We apply the static load and then we let go. And in this case, we had the cable in there and all I did was walk back there and repeatedly pulling down the cable. And I was trying to match the frequency of the tree. I was going with the tree as I was pumping up the tree and I would like to show you some of the tree responses. Now that is the strain in the fibers that's indicated. You see the static load part where we just pulled the tree, we increased the fiber strain up to this point here, and then I let go and went, down, went back to the rope and started pumping it up, and I was able to get the same fiber strain that I got in the static load test. So I, I really was able to come up with the same reaction of the stem than in the static load test, and I want to show you the forces involved. That was the force in the static pull test, and that was the force required for me to pump up the tree using this natural frequency response, the resonance phenomenon, that the tree, I was going with the tree, and I only used one-third of the forces required to get the same reaction in the stem. Now, that's what equivalent static wind load is about. In this tree, to be able to make the correct assessment of the wind load, I would have to take three times the calculated wind load from the mean wind pressure if I was, if, if I was to take into account this resonance effect. Because I could get the same reaction with one-third of the force. I tried to compare... Uh, our wind load analysis software with Ken James data on one of the eucalypts. And just to give you an example, I've got some maybe just four minutes. Okay, that's close, but I'll try. Um, we do the analysis in here. I'm not going to into do much detail with it, but basically we're taking into account the natural frequency of the stem that was measured by Ken and also the damping ratios. So We've, had, we've got the height of the tree, we've got a surface area that we come up with, and we, the software indicates a load center. That's a theoretical value just to be able to uh, do mechanic models on it. And the measured maximum wind speeds were 17 meters per second, and Ken came up with these figures for the natural frequency and the damping ratio. And our gust reaction factor for this tree was... 3.1. That means we have the mean wind speed acting on the tree, and then we amplify this figure by a factor of 3.1 to make up for the gustiness of the wind, the increase in wind speed in these gusts, and the reaction of the tree to it. So it's a complex probabilistic model 
how likely is it that this tree is going to have these resonance effects and then a lot of uh, factors that Ken has been talking about are incorporated in this following a standard uh, wind engineering model in the German building code. We came up with an estimated wind load of 100 kilonewton meter, uh, but I have actually applied a rather high aerodynamic drag factor for this here because I found out, like Ken has mentioned, that his wind speed measurements were good for what he has done, but not for the comparison, obviously. And I was coming up with 100 kilonewton meter, and that was exactly what uh, Ken had measured in this tree during that specific storm event. Now, I'm not trying to say that I can actually mimic exactly or simulate exactly what Ken is measuring with his uh, detailed data on, on, on reactions of trees to wind, but we're getting in the same range. I think we're getting very close if we are able to incorporate these dynamic factors that, or dynamic parameters that he's researching and uh, are able to put that into the model. All right, I've got two examples, two minutes, and then I think I'm through. This was an exposed lime tree. There was a big tree behind it before they felled it, and there's a school ground right next to it. So the question was, is the tree, after being exposed in the prevailing wind direction, is it actually strong enough to be left there? And because it was a high-sensitivity area with the school around it, they wanted to know exactly what to do, and they didn't want to reduce it just per se because it was quite a nice and valuable tree. Here's the stem. There's some inclination as well. It was a corrected lean. It had moved away from the big crown of the tree behind it. And we did the same analysis just to give you an idea of the outcome. We have got a gust reaction factor again in the area of three. These figures for natural frequency and damping ratio uh, were measured in a plug and release or plug test or load release test. So we load the tree, quickly let go, and just like, uh, uh, like Ken is doing it, we're monitoring the sway, swaying motion of the tree. And we come up with a wind load of 345 kilonewton meters. That is 2.5 tons at 14 meter height. So we're lower than the figures that uh, Ken had measured. And still, the analysis showed that the stem reaction and the inclination reaction were stronger than for a sound tree we would have expected. So that tree had to be reduced to be able to retain it. And the uh, same was true for the measurement of, tree, uh, of tipping in the root area. And the last example is an oak, big, big oak, a snevel phage. He's just there as a measure for how big the trunk is. And the concerns were they had excavated roots and found root damages following uh, a meripulous infection. Uh, the tree was very vigorous, so, but there was some experts saying it has to go, it's really dangerous. The council was saying, oh, probably we have to fell it. Then the, the citizens got involved. They uh, went to the tree and prevented it from being felled. So the consensus was we need to test it. And just to give you more numbers, of wind loads, this is 850 kilonewton meter approximately, 7.3 tons, that's a big, big number of force acting on that crown. But again, this trunk, this tree, has a lot of side branches, is very well damped, and we could retain this tree easily. There's a big, big safety margin for this tree, also for the tipping behavior for the root uh, damages, so it's a long time before that tree really has to go. And that's where I think these level of detailed inspections play an important role. Not that we can predict when it's going to fail, but we can say there's a lot of safety margins we don't have to be worried about. Thank you. This concludes Andreas Detter's talk on wind load assessment for ornamental trees. If you would like to learn more on wind and trees, or tree failures, the ISA offers several books on these topics. They can be found at the ISA website, isa-arbor.com. If you enjoyed this talk, you will certainly want to join us next time to listen to the podcast from Dr. Frank Wren. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the ISA office, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Lab.
Please remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.